Welcome to another episode from the Air Force Judge Advocate General School. We have a remarkable interview in store for you today. This episode is the first of a two-part interview with Air Force retired Colonel Carlisle Smitty Harris, a Vietnam War veteran fighter pilot who was shot down on combat mission in his F-105 over North Vietnam on April 4, 1965. Colonel Harris was forced to bail out, captured by the North Vietnamese, and became the sixth American POW, where he spent the next eight years in captivity with hundreds of other American POWs, including John McCain and George Bud Day. Colonel Harris suffered through torture, solitary confinement, and relentless abuse, but endured through it all with reliance on the Code of Military Conduct and a communication system called the TAP Code, an old and unused World War II communication method that he covertly taught his fellow POWs, and they in turn taught others, which remained a vital link of communication through their captivity, without which they may have not prevailed. Here are a few clips from part one. We knew how important communication was and went to every effort wherever we were moved to make sure that all POWs knew it and took great risks sometimes to do that. Do not give them anything of value until they torture you so much that you can take no more and still retain your sanity and will. Welcome to the Air Force Judge Advocate General's Reporter Podcast, where we interview leaders, innovators, and influencers on the law, leadership, and best practices of the day. And now to your host from the Air Force Judge Advocate General School. Welcome to another episode from the Air Force Judge Advocate General School at Maxwell Air Force Base. I'm your host, Major Rick Hanrahan. Remember, if you like the show, please consider subscribing on Apple Podcast iTunes and leaving a review. This helps us to grow an outreach to the JAG Corps and beyond. Well, we, we have what I would say is a truly amazing um, guest in store today and an amazing show for you today. I'm personally humbled and honored to, do, to introduce our very special guest, retired Colonel Carlisle Smitty Harris, most well known as an eight-year prisoner of war or POW in North Vietnam creator of the TAP code that allowed fellow POWs to communicate while in captivity, and frankly, just a story of remarkable courage, strength, and inspiration. Sir, it is an honor to have you in today to talk to us. Well, thank you very much. One slight correction, I really got the TAP code. It had been used in World War II between different parts of a prison, U.S., uh, prisoners would tap on a common water pipe that could be carry the sound and that story was told to me out at Stead Air Force Base uh, the SEER program out there and uh, as I was leaving class it was just providence the instructor was walking beside me and uh, I asked him how did they send the dashes and he explained if I had a moment, and he went up on the chalkboard and showed me the tap code. So I really didn't invent it. I just was able to happen to have it. But clearly something that was absolutely imperative for communication with your fellow um, POWs. Is that correct, sir? 
Yes, uh, we were held in solitary confinement to begin with, and after uh, about three months, for some reason, the North Vietnamese made decisions and and encountered them. We never knew what they were going to do. They put four of us into a cell together, and another joined us, so there were really five. And while we were together, that was wonderful. But uh, I taught them the tap code, and when we, a few days later, we were back in solitary confinement, and we tried it out, and it worked fine. Everyone knew how important it was for us to communicate with each other, and uh, so we went to great lengths to make sure that every POW learned the TAP code, and it really spread like a chain reaction because everyone knew how important it was. Incredible, sir. I'd like to provide for our listeners just a little bit of background, and then we can kind of segue in um, back into this incredible story. So Colonel Smitty Harris entered the Air Force on January 2nd, 1951, and served through the rank of sergeant before earning his commission. He retired from the Air Force as a colonel in 1975. During his career, he flew fighter aircraft, was an instructor pilot, operations officer, and faculty member at the Air War College. On April 4, 1965, while on a combat mission, his F-105 was hit, and Colonel Harris was forced to bail out over North Vietnam. He was captured immediately and was the sixth American POW and spent the next eight years as a POW in various prisons where he was confined, mistreated, and tortured. As we've been discussing, he is credited with introducing the TAP code um, to the POWs so that they could communicate surreptitiously between their cells. During his career, Colonel Harris earned two Silver Star Medals, three Legion of Merits, the Distinguished Flying Cross, two Bronze Stars for Valor, two Air Medals, and two Purple Hearts. Colonel Harris retired from the Air Force in August of 1979 and entered directly into the University of Mississippi Law School, where he joined the Mississippi Bar in December of 1981. His post-Air Force employment included banking, law, and marketing. He otherwise keeps busy with volunteer work, flying, travel, golf, reading, and other pursuits to include publishing this new book here at the end of 2019 with his co-author Sarah Barry entitled Tap Code, The Epic Survival Tale of a Vietnam POW and the Secret Code that Changed Everything. He resides with his wife Louise in Tupelo, Mississippi, where his children and grandchildren also reside. So, sir... uh, um, I know we were just talking about Tap Code, which is an amazing, an amazing story, and I'm looking at the book here, which is also an amazing book. Uh, but maybe we could start a little bit more on your background. I know you, you enlisted in the Air Force, actually, in 1951. Could you talk a little bit about how that came to be? Well, in 1951, the Korean War was going on, and in order not to be drafted into the Army, I enlisted in the Air Force with a goal of sometime going through pilot training and getting my commission in wings. And uh, that, uh, I actually, that actually happened in September of 1953. So from then on, I wanted to be a fighter pilot and was able to go through pilot after pilot training to get that assignment. After gunnery school, I was wanted to be in the F-86F program so I could go shoot down some MiGs. 
<laughs> but, well, I got part of my wish because I was assigned to F-86Fs in a squadron that was located at City Slain of French Morocco. <laughs> it turned out to be a very good assignment anyway. They didn't have any MiGs over there, though. So maybe briefly, sir, could you describe where your assignments were and what were some of your trainings you had to do? Well, I came back from French Morocco into the training com- Air Training Command and uh, was an instructor at Greenville Air Force Base and then transferred to Bainbridge, Georgia, which was a, a civilian-run, operated pilot training base, but... Uh, there was a good outcome of that because I met a young lady who is sitting beside me right now, <laughs> and uh, we've been married for over 60 years, so it, it was turned out to be a great assignment. After that, they were sent me to Air Training Command Headquarters in at Randolph Air Force Base in San Antonio, and I was we were there uh, for a couple of years. Uh, both of our daughters were born while we were on that tour in San Antonio. They're little Texicans now, I guess. It was a very good experience, too. I was um, chief of the promotion and flying status branches for all of Air Training Command. And right down the hall from me were the officer assignment guys. And I made friends with them and was able to get another fighter assignment, was assigned to McConnell Air Force Base. We flew F-100s before transitioning into the F-105. Around what time frame was that, sir? I went to McConnell Air Force Base in 19, early 1964, and uh, was then assigned from there after going through F- F-105 training out at Nellis, and I, we were assigned to Okinawa, and oh, that was a such a beautiful place. We loved it. It was a two-year tour, but we could have extended. Uh, my wife and my daughters loved it as well, to a great squadron and a great squadron commander, uh, Robbie Reisner, and uh, we were just flying training missions in the F-105, but then they started sending about two flights out of two or three different squadrons to Karat Air Base in Thailand. And from Karat, we were flying missions up over Laos and into North Vietnam. And uh, it was on one of these, it was on my second TDY to Karat, and the mission was to a large bridge that had vehicular and rail traffic, and it was the first important target we had even been permitted to uh, hit. And so um, I flew a mission against it on consecutive days, the 3rd and the 4th of April. The 4th of April, I was carrying eight 750-pound bombs and happened to be the first airplane down the chute in a 45-degree dive angle. And the rest of my squadron was staying in altitude because they wanted to see 
the impact of my bombs because the wind was unknown. Down where the bridge was, it was in kind of a valley, and the winds were not very predictable. I made a perfect run, perfect sight picture. The bombs came off, and I pulled out, pulling a lot of Gs, and hit my afterburner to get out of there in a hurry. And uh, some lucky gunner shot a 37-millimeter exploding anti-aircraft round up in the air, and I took it out. Could you walk us through that experience, sir, about what what happened uh, next? The exploding round hit in the engine area. The F-105 was single pilot and single engine airplane, and uh, immediately deceleration because I was getting no engine power. Also, a, a bunch of fire lights were on the warning panel were lit, and uh, I tried to turn the aircraft towards the sea because I knew there was a better chance of rescue there, but I didn't get very far. The plane was becoming uncontrollable. I think some of the hydraulic lines had been cut. At any rate, I was forced to eject, and uh, everything went perfectly in the ejection. Uh, the chute opened automatically, and I was at fairly low altitude, 1,500 feet or so, I guess. And I looked down to see if there was any place I could guide the chute to seek cover of some kind or, or a river or any hills. But to my dismay, I was directly over a large Vietnamese village with rice paddies in every direction. Uh, we were so close to the target, the bridge, that the villagers could hear their own anti-aircraft guns going off and also the bombs from ensuing airplanes uh, hitting the target. So they, if they weren't hiding, they were looking up to the sky to see what was going on. And they immediately saw my chute and uh, I was just overpowered immediately they were waiting for me on the ground if i can ask what was going through your mind at this moment well i remember thinking i'm going to be in north vietnam for a long time <laughs> I, by a long time i meant six months or more <laughs> it turned out to be almost eight years but uh they were very angry when i landed uh one of the young men was really emotional, and he was influencing some of the other villagers. Three of them had rifles. Uh, he pushed me up against a brick wall of a broken-down building at the edge of the village, and three of his cohorts were just 15 feet away or so with their rifles, and he walked over and put his finger on my forehead as an aim point. But there was a lot of talk, and villagers, some older villagers, milled in between us. And, of course, my life was saved. But uh, I found out that generally the North Vietnamese people were very well disciplined, and they had been told to capture American pilots alive because we might be of some value as hostages or whatever. And then from that point, maybe you could walk us through the, maybe your, the first uh, 72 hours of that experience from what you recall, the conditions, um, where they took you, um, kind of what you experienced. 
from the village, I had bunged up my knee pretty badly on landing. I also had a broken shoulder, but they gave me back my boots. They had uh, stripped me down in my shorts before, and uh, they gave me back my boots and flying suit, and I zipped it halfway down as a sling for my arm, and we started walking, and uh, I guess we walked at least three hours. They had one stop for lunch where they had some lunch, and uh, I had two guards watching me, and they didn't. I indicated I was very, very thirsty, and they finally gave me a bowl of hot, watery soup that I could barely get down, but it was a little bit of liquid. Finally got to a, I guess it was kind of a police station. Well, I went through a couple other villages and was put in a, it was obviously a cell, heavy wooden door, and uh, one bed, which was nothing but heavy wooden planks. They pushed me in, and in a short time, a cadre of about three or four of them came back, and one of them was an English speaker. And he immediately asked me uh, what ship I had flown from and what were my targets and capabilities of the airplane. And I refused to answer anything except I did give them my name, rank, service number, and date of birth. They got pretty darn angry and knocked me around quite a bit. They saw that I had a wedding band on, so they threw me down and they, well, they asked me to give it to them, and I wouldn't. So they uh, threw me down and took it off me. Uh, it wasn't very difficult because that was my arm with a broken shoulder, too. So, But anyway, later, uh, maybe after they left, I heard a bunch of voices outside the cell. And they had encouraged villagers to come and see this criminal pirate that they had captured. So I felt more safe inside the cell than out. But the door opened, and they had a roped-off area uh, to keep the villagers away from me because they had been brought with a uh, loudspeaker to an emotional state uh, that's unbelievable. And these are the same villagers I had walked through their village earlier in the day, and they just looked at me curiously. They showed me their their hatred with their fists and so on, and I was finally thrown back in that cell, and uh, I was glad to be there. Can you describe the those the conditions within the cell? Well, there was a bucket and nothing else in the bed, and it was about seven by seven maybe, and uh, a big a barred door with a about 10 by 10 hole in it that could be opened from the outside that had bars in it so that they could look in and there was a one light that hung down uh, that was on 24 hours a day as that happened in all of our the cells in which we were held uh, they could always look in on us and they always had the light on from there i was put in a jeep-like vehicle and taken to the city of Thanwa, 
which was pretty good sized uh, North Vietnamese city, really, and not far from the bridge I had bombed. And uh, the uh, jeep pulled up, and I was pulled out, and my blindfold taken off. Uh, my hands were tied in front of me with ropes, and there were several thousand North Vietnamese there to greet me. They were being kept away from me, but there were uh, they had big old lights illuminating a stage of some kind, outdoor stage, and uh, these blaring microphones bringing the people to to a state of hatred and emotion. And from there, I was tied to a guy who was in the uh, a motorcycle sidecar. He gave me about three feet of rope, and we started through the crowd with probably eight or ten guards, uh, four or five on each side, uh, trying to keep the people away from me because they were ready to to do me in. And uh, they showed it by throwing things at me, shoes, anything they had. One young man was able to get through the guards and give me a kick to the kidney area that was almost incapacitating. But I stumbled on, and that went on for probably uh, a half an hour. And we came to another Jeep-like vehicle, and I was put on it, or in it, with uh, two guards up front and one back in back with me, blindfolded. And we started the trek overnight in the Jeep and arrived at the in Hanoi, their capital, sometime midday the next day. And from there, I was flown in another similar cell, uh, except it was a large prison with, with many uh, cells in it. At this new location, were, were you able to see other POWs at that time, or did you know whether you were alone or you were with others? No, I did not see other POWs at that time, they went to insane efforts to keep us from seeing or communicating uh, with other POWs. And we were, the six of us, when I got there, uh, were all in solitary confinement. I was able to use voice uh, and during their siesta time, call down to another American who was whistling a song that I recall. So I knew he was an American. And we just had a few words. His name was Hayden Lockhart. He had been shot down. He was the third person shot down over North Vietnam. I was the sixth. But just exchanging names were really all we could do because the guards came and banged on the door and finally a turnkey opened it. And an English speaker came in and and told us what was going to happen uh, if we were caught communicating again. So we tried it a couple times more at, during siesta time, but it was uh, very short, and we didn't have a, a lot of communication. That's when we were moved back to another area of the Wallow Prison, uh, the Hanoi Hilton, as we called it into a little section that had 
four cells on each side of a little corridor, and all of them were about the same, roughly seven by seven, and they had each had two bunks in them, and leg restraints at the end of each that could be moved over on top of the ankles and locked. It was pretty rough in there because we couldn't talk to each other and get away with it. We did a little bit, but uh, the guards were really adamant about any communication. But after about three months, uh, four of us were taken out and put in a cell together, a larger cell. And then Hayden Lockhart, a day later, joined us, so there were five of us. And at that time, I was able to teach them the tap code. It had not been taught in any of our services, so that's how it started. The North Vietnamese did irrational things all the time. Maybe 10 days or so, we were back in solitary confinement in the same area. We called it Heartbreak Hotel, those eight cells. And uh, there were some other later shoot-downs that came in. And as they did, we were able to get voice communication a little bit and teach them to tap code. And all of us used it on the walls. And that's how it really started. We knew how important communication was and went to every effort wherever we were moved to make sure that all POWs knew it and took great risks sometimes to do that, but uh, we, we knew it was worth it. Could you share with our listeners a little bit about how you came to learn about the TAP code? When I was, went through your training uh, at Nellis Air Force, excuse me, at Stead Air Force Base in Reno, Nevada, a sergeant was teaching a communications class, and uh, his name was Claude Watkins. He mentioned that in World War II, American POWs held in German uh, POW camp were able to tap on a common water pipe and communicate between different buildings. As it would happen, I asked him as we left class how they sent the dashes, thinking it was Morse code. He said, no, I probably should have explained that. It was not Morse code, it was tap code and uh, he pulled me up to the chalkboard and drew it out for me and that's how I learned it quite by chance. How vital or important was it to communicate while in captivity? Well that's kind of a long story because it was absolutely essential for us. Uh, The first thing we did was tap each other get names and any information that we could get from later shoot-downs, but uh, quickly we tried to find out who was the senior ranking of the group in our communication network, no matter how big it was or wherever we were, because uh, that was made us comfortable to have a senior ranking officer make decisions. For instance, we would discuss among ourselves in that uh, heartbreak hotel, we called it, different responses we should try to to make with the North Vietnamese during the interrogations. And the SRO would decide on one so we would be consistent. And also, uh, our communication, they were trying to really create doubt 
about our relationship with other POWs. Our interrogators would tell us that uh, Lockhart or Shoemaker or one of them <coughs> had told them all about their aircraft capabilities and and uh, targets and uh, you might as well too and try to use us against each other but they were unable to because we were able were communicating all the time about what we were being interrogated uh, about how we resisted and what we thought and the SRO would get in on that too of how we should resist and it just boiled down do not give them anything of value until they torture you so much that you can take no more and still retain your sanity and will. And uh, so that was our guidance. And so we did it time after time. Uh, And it created a peer pressure among all of us when somebody came back and communicated what he had gone through. We made up our minds that we were going to do just as much if we could or more if we could. And uh, it created a unity and an esprit, a pride in our uh, whatever group we were in uh, because we were actively opposing the enemy and doing our best to deny any opportunity of being exploited uh, by making t- propaganda statements or giving them any kind of operational uh, information of value. And uh, we were very successful. We told lies. <laughs> we made up things. Uh, we talked among ourselves what we were going to tell him and no more. And sometimes in an interrogation, they wanted to know something about maybe our organization or how our airplanes were organized in a raid and so on. And we would sit there and listen and, and talk to them a little bit, giving no information, but we were at the same time trying to egg the interrogator to give his opinion of what the, the answer should be. And pretty soon he would give some answer that was way off base, but we would agree with him. So, And he really thought that was good information. And uh, we had all kinds of ways of just not cooperating with him in any way. And uh, I think that is the one thing that we followed the code of conduct to the best of our ability. Uh, Sometimes we were tortured to a point where we had to do something different. But when we did, we usually went to a second level of resistance. And uh, when they wanted us to write a propaganda statement that the the North Vietnamese communist government was so great and we were, our government was so bad and we were criminal air pirates, they wanted us to write that. Well, the English language is so rich we could put in double meanings all kinds of things that when if those uh, statements had ever been read to intelligent people uh, they would recognize immediately that they were forced statements as a matter of fact the north vietnamese made almost no effort 
to use any of the propaganda statements they force us to write because at the highest levels of intelligence and government, they recognize it would be counterproductive if those were released. Thank you for listening to part one. Please tune into part two where we further explore Colonel Harris's POW experience, eventual release after eight years of confinement, and his personal insights on resiliency and leadership. It's an episode you won't want to miss. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Air Force Judge Advocate General's Reporter Podcast. You can find this episode, transcription, and show notes along with others at reporter.dodlive.mil. We welcome your feedback. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review. This helps us grow, innovate, and develop an even better JAG Corps. Until next time, nothing from this show or any others could be construed as legal advice. Please consult an attorney for any legal issue. Nothing from this show is endorsed by the federal government, Air Force, or any of its components. All content and opinions are those of our guests and hope. Thank you.